Welcome to the podcast by Kevin MD, brought to you by the Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience. With so many demands on their time, physicians today report record levels of burnout. Burnout is caused by many factors, one of which is clinical documentation. Studies indicate physicians spend two hours documenting care for every hour spent with patients. At Nuance, we are committed to helping physicians do what you love, care for patients, and spend less time on clinical documentation. The Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX for short, is an AI-powered ambient clinical intelligence solution that automatically captures patient encounters securely and accurately at the point of care. Physicians who use DAX have reported a 50% decrease in documentation time and 70% reduction in feelings of burnout, and 83% of patients say their physicians are more personable and conversational. Rediscover the joy of medicine with clinical documentation that writes itself, all within the EHR. Visit nuance.com slash DAX in action. That's nuance.com slash DAX A-C-T-I-O-N to learn more. And now, on to the show. From Kevin MD, I'm Dr. Kevin Poe, and this is the podcast by Kevin MD. Welcome to the podcast by Kevin MD, the only daily medical podcast where we share the stories of the many who intersect with our healthcare system but are rarely heard from. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Poe. Hi, and welcome to the show. Rate and review at kevinmd.com slash rate. Subscribe at kevinmd.com slash podcast. Today in the show, we have Katrina Gibson. She's an emergency physician. Her Kevin MD article is titled, Student Loan Forgiveness, A Key Step in Achieving Health Equity for Minority Physicians and Patients. Katrina, welcome to the show. Why, good afternoon or morning, depending upon where you are. Thank you so much for having me, and happy Black History Month. All right, and we'll get into your article in a little bit, but first off, just briefly share your story and journey to where you are today. Sure. So I was born and raised in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and my path to where I am has not been linear. However, I think that there have been a few recurring themes. I was fortunate enough to be raised by parents who instilled in me the importance of advocacy and social justice, even from a small age. I feel like my first foray, foray into that is probably... As a first grader, when we went to the elementary school to kind of discuss with my teacher at the time, her slavery curriculum. So things started relatively young. So, and also being a racial minority in Ann Arbor, Michigan, I was very aware of who I am, ways that I stood out, and I was able to use that as a strength and my support system as an an outlet and for for advocacy and social justice. As before I even graduated high school, I had the opportunity to serve as an appellant and intervener in the Gradsby Bollinger Affirmative Action case against against the University of Michigan. So as you can see, social justice has been a recurring theme. But what that looks like and how I've been able to use my voice and my platform has changed. So um, after majoring in biomedical engineering, I decided that I actually did want to go into medicine. So I chose emergency medicine for a myriad of reasons. And I think it truly is the gateway to the medical field. We see a lot of the things that are public health issues. They rear its ugly head in the emergency medicine. A lot of the, our patients, particularly where I work at Greater Memorial Hospital, 
hospital are either uninsured or underinsured, and they have been at the mercy and are perhaps victims of social determinants or social drivers of health as we're kind of now changing the narrative to see. And my position as an emergency medicine physician gives me the opportunity to be a voice not only for my patients, but for medical students and residents who chose to take this path to to be a voice for the, the for the voiceless. So you talk about your role in the emergency department. So what are some ways that you can move the needle, especially with your background in advocacy? Right. So the emergency department, I think that everybody can, regardless of whether or not you have a focus in health equity or social justice, each patient encounter in itself is an opportunity to advocate for an individual patient. Being in academia, one of my major outlets for my work is education, as well as my professional organization, specifically the National Medical Association, as well as the Society for Academic Emergency and Medicine, has really given me the opportunity to impact the curriculum that we use to educate our learners, as well as inform how we interact with our patients. For instance, one of the things that I think is important now is implicit bias training, how that impacts not only how we educate our learners, but how we take care of our patients. For instance, a lot of us are probably familiar with the disproportionate use of pain medication for patients, depending upon their race and their creed. Of course, there's also disproportionate and equitable outcomes for women of color, Black women specifically, when it comes to maternal morbidity rates. So implicit bias, race, social class, all of these directly impact how we take care of our patients. Some of these biases are implicit, others are explicit, but as physicians, it's important that we recognize these biases and and how they impact our patient outcomes. And we have a we have a social responsibility to make sure that this is something that's as intrinsic to our curriculum as cardiology and or you know pathophysiology because these are the things that impact how our patients receive care and where they receive care. All right, let's talk about your Kevin MD article titled Student Loan Forgiveness, a key step in achieving health equity for minority physicians and patients. Now, tell us how did this article come together? Sure. So amongst our our circles, we've always hear people talking about student loan debt. Mm -hmm. However, the general public in general, they don't really want to hear about a bunch of physicians who are going to be making six figures their, their debt. That doesn't seem to resonate. However, what we don't discuss to the same extent is the disproportionate and or inequitable distribution of that debt. People of color, Blacks, Hispanics tend to have more educational debt even prior to entering medical school, even at the undergraduate level when compared to their white counterparts. So what does that mean and and why should I care if I'm not a physician, people may ask. So this article helps to explore that. So before students even get to the point where they're a candidate for medical school, just based upon their zip code, their social determinants or drivers of health, that may dictate whether or not they even have the opportunity or feel like they have the opportunity to enter medical school. So this affects the diversity of the medical school pipeline. So, of course, that you know dictates who goes into academic medicine, who performs research, and whether or not certain patients are likely to have physicians who look like them. Now, as much as we you know, like to laud ourselves as enlightened and sophisticated, we still have implicit biases. I have them myself, and it's important to realize that these have real consequences for real patients. We know that patients receive better care from those who look like them. However, 
if student loan debt is a barrier for entering the medical field or even certain specialties, then this can have impacts for the outcome, the healthcare outcomes of our patients. And this disproportionately affects, for instance, lower pain fields such as you know, primary care. And these are where patients have the most needs. I mean, having insurance, if, if you don't have access to a primary care physician, if wait times are six, seven, eight months, that doesn't necessarily mean mean that you have access. So that's fodder for another discussion. Insurance doesn't equal access. However, student loan debt has provided barriers for entering the medical school pipeline. For It provides barriers for the diversity in academic medicine across all fields. And it has real impacts for people who are not in areas where they have access to primary care physicians. So I think with COVID, this really opened our eyes to a lot of healthcare inequities with the racial violence that is getting a lot more attention in the last several years. It's given us the opportunity to add new voice and change the narrative for facts and, th- and figures that we've been discussing for years, but in a manner that has less of an emphasis on what that looks like for the pocketbook physicians and more so what that looks like for diversifying our pipeline, as well Mm -hmm. as what type of outcomes we can expect for certain patients, particularly those who are underrepresented in medicine. Just so we can understand the scope and depth of the issue, what, what are some numbers when it comes to the disparity when it comes to educational debt between minorities and non minorities? Sure, that's an excellent question. And my article touches on that. For instance, if you, the Association of American Medical Colleges puts out these type of numbers, and they showed us that about 40.5% of Black matriculants had $25,000 or more in pre-medical education debt. And this is compared to only 18.7% of their white counterparts. So we're talking about debt before students even matriculate into medical school. That burden worsens after students have completed their four years of medical school and undergraduate training with 91% of graduates, black graduates having a median debt of $230,000. And this is compared to 70% of white students who had a median debt of $200,000. So from a practical standpoint, we asked ourselves, what does that mean? Unfortunately, regardless of what your passions may be, people have bills to pay, families to support, and this can directly impact what type of specialty you may want to go into or where you're able to practice. For instance, maybe entering medical school, your goal was to you know, enter an area that was underserved in the South or other rural Midwestern areas. However, if you have debt that may not make that a realistic choice for you and your family, you might have to think about where you're going to practice and or what and possibly choose a more lucrative field. And of course, all of our specialists contribute to the healthcare outcomes of our patients. However, there are certain areas and certain specialties where we just need more physicians, and that tends to be in primary care and in mental health areas. Now, in your interactions with medical students, whether you're a mentor to them, has that issue of educational debt influenced their career path? Absolutely. And there are a lot of people, and I'm speaking from anecdotal experience as well as, you know, studies show that people take their medical debt into consideration when they're choosing a specialty. For instance, maybe someone wanted to go into primary care and or family medicine, but unfortunately, reimbursement rates and or compensation for those specialties may not be all that realistic. So once again, that sets their sights on different pain fields. And, I, and some of this, of course, can can also shed some light on the on the inequities in 
the representation of physicians in certain specialties. For instance, some of the higher paying, more competitive specialties are less likely to be as diverse, whether that be racially diverse, gender diversity. And of course, it's a little bit more difficult to achieve a certain position if you haven't seen someone who looks like you in those fields. And it's that can be that much more difficult to find mentorship, to find opportunities. So there are a lot of barriers to, to this pipeline, whether it be from medical school or even college. But let's be honest, if our students don't have these opportunities by the time they're college age, they're already at a disadvantage to make them to place themselves in positions where they can be competitive for medical school. Now, when someone talks to you and tells you that their educational burden is influencing what they can and can't do going forward. Now, you're speaking as a physician and a public health professional. How does that make you feel? I mean, it's not surprising, but it's a problem that's unique to the United States in many ways. Some of our, you know, our counterparts, college debt is is not it's not an issue. It's this whole idea that, you know, college should be for certain people and that usually certain people, of course, is going to be less likely to be underrepresented in medicine due to just our, our country's sordid history with racism, with with all types of discrimination that made it that much more difficult for certain people to be in areas where they have access to public schools that can prepare them for certain colleges and universities and make and make these opportunities available for all. So it's something that I realize is a continued burden. I don't think that it has to be an insurmountable one. However, we we when I say we, I don't just mean physicians, members of the public of the public health care field, but just citizens in general need to understand how all of our fates are inter- interwoven into who is able to access higher education and what that means for the greater good. So I think that despite the fact that it's a pervasive issue that can be fought from a legal standpoint, a medical standpoint, I think it can be disheartening, but it just means that there's that much more work to do. And we need to explore what our outlets look like for addressing those issues. So let's talk about next steps. And I'm sure that you're aware that there are a variety of options in terms of tackling this issue. It could it could be from you know medical schools that forgive tuition. It could be programs that forgive educational debt if they serve in underserved areas. So among the menu of options, what do you think is the best path forward? That's an excellent question. I think that this is something that we need to address not only in the short and the learn and the long term as well. One of the things that inspired my article was the Biden, the Biden administration student loan debt relief plan. This was something that brought a lot of joy temporarily to many people. While some of this may not apply directly to physicians due to their likely income, I think that um, in the short term, this is something that can address that that issue. People who have a significant amount of debt that, as we just talked about before, that can impact the types of fields that they enter, whether they be medical or not, as well as where they live, whether or not they're able to purchase a home and engage in other activities that stimulate the the economy for us all. I think that- So let's, let me um, jump in there specifically for those who aren't familiar with the details of the Biden debt relief plan. How does that specifically impact prospective or current medical students? 
Sure. So there are several parts to this student loan relief program. So the first part, the pandemic-related academic challenges led to a pausing of these federal health loans. I know that plenty of people, myself personally, have been able to benefit from that. Um, the second part of this targeted debt relief would allow for up to $20,000 in relief to Pell Grant recipients with loans held by the Department of Education and up to $10,000 in relief to non-Pell Grant recipients. There's also the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program for people who made 120 eligible payments while working at nonprofit organizations be given. And this also means academic institutions as well. And this would result in them being able to forgive their debt after those 120 payments are made. Also, the third part of this debt relief program is hoping to kind of keep the, the gaze moving forward, making sure that student loan systems are more manageable for current and future buy for current and future borrowers. But let's be honest, when a lot of us are taking out this debt, we're 17 and 18-year-old teenagers who many of whom may not have ever even had a credit card. So I think that it's important for people to not only understand the rest ramifications of this debt, make sure that they have all of the information that they need, whether it be what types of scholarships that they're available, that are, are that they're eligible for, as well as what type of institutions might be more favorable for them as far as from an economic standpoint, as far as educational opportunities. These are all things that we need to think about to not just impact medical student debt, but make debt more manageable and understandable, regardless of what field that you're going into, so that students and their families who want to pursue higher education, particularly for students who might be first generation going into college, they may not have the same tools in education or, or advice regarding these types of decisions. And they will wake up, you know, five to 10 years later with six figures in debt and maybe not really understanding what that may look like for their future career choices. So those are three of the parts of the, the Biden debt relief program plus public service loan forgiveness that preceded that that's in question right now. You alluded to before that a lot of institutions are you know, offering debt free education for students who make a certain whose families may make under a certain amount of money. That's a short term fix that both private and public institutions can take into consideration consideration to make sure that a price tag is not what's is not a barrier for students who otherwise have so much to offer the institution and their future respective fields and 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 debt and cost should not be something that students have to take into consideration when choosing where they want to go to school and what it is that they want to do to contribute to the world. Now, for those underrepresented minorities in undergraduate that are considering a career in medicine, now from a financial student debt standpoint, what kind of advice do you have for them as they're looking potentially to medicine as a career? That's an excellent question. I think that I acknowledge that everybody's situation is different, and I think it's important to be realistic when we approach these matters, but make sure that students don't take these take these debt barriers in into consideration, or at least don't use it as a complete deterrent. For instance, I'll tell students that they should look into you know, their, their state schools, look into HBCUs, and also as soon as they get to college, even by, or I'm sorry, to high school, even by you know their sophomore, junior year, make sure that they are familiar with whomever their you know, college advisors are to see if they can maximize scholarships which they are available. A lot, I understand that you know, a lot of the high schools don't have the same type of resources as far as preparing their students academically, whether it be for scholarships or SAT. So these, so I think that's a lot of times, unfortunately, students have to 
seek those opportunities out themselves and also look into areas. And you mentioned before, no loan schools and really just have to be just a little bit more coming about these types of opportunities because not everyone is going to tell you about them. Also look for mentorship, whether it be for people within fields that you know look like you, but also look for mentors and opportunities from anyone because don't be afraid to learn from anyone. These mentors may not have the same experiences that you have had, but they definitely can shed some sort of light into the process. And they, if they are where you want to be, then it's important for you to learn from their journey. As you enter college, definitely make sure that you start to seek mentorship from medical students, residents, physicians, because they can also make you aware of opportunities as far as scholarships and what it takes to be to, or what it takes to get to where you need to be. We're talking to Katrina Gibson. She's an emergency medicine physician. Her Kevin MD article is titled Student Loan Forgiveness, A Key Step in Achieving Health Equity for Minority Physicians and Patients. Katrina, tell us some of your take-home messages that you want to leave with the Kevin MD audience. Sure. I think that one thing that I share, particularly with residents and medical students, is that health equity truly is social justice. And even if this is not your life's work, it's something that can be interwoven into whatever it is that you do. All of our fates and our stories come together, and we all benefit when everyone is winning. Also, I think it's important to realize, particularly early on in your career, that success is not a linear path. I myself am a work in progress. Don't be discouraged by obstacles and pitfalls. Always be willing to invest in your network and ask for help and guidance because, well, as I mentioned before, like them, this no one else's journey is yours. And just because your journey doesn't look like someone else's doesn't mean that it's less impactful. It doesn't mean that you're less successful in your time timeline is your own and everyone can benefit from whatever contributions it is that you have to make to the field. Katrina, thank you so much for sharing your time and insight. And thanks again for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the podcast by Kevin MD. To share your story and appear on the show, visit kevinmd.com.